Miracy. In terms of my leadership, you know, what I would always want to be known for is the intent of doing right by the organization and all of its stakeholders, of which the employees are a part. Welcome to To Lead is Human. I'm Sharon Richmond, and for more than three decades, I've run a business called Leading Large, helping C-level executives have greater impact. We strategize together to clarify their priorities, energize their organizations, and build cultures based on accountability and respect. In this podcast, we introduce you to real-life executives who've intentionally built organizations where leadership, the bottom line, investors, and employees all thrive together. These successful leaders demonstrate the principles of leading large. They know that as leaders, the power that comes with their position demands an equal measure of responsibility to their customers, employees, shareholders, and communities. In each episode, we have the opportunity to learn from the challenges and successes they've experienced on their leadership journey. I'm so very pleased to welcome my guest today, Eliana Hassan. Eliana is an award-winning leader with loads of experience in professional services, staffing, consulting, outsourcing across marketing, digital, and technology verticals. She's currently the CEO and managing partner of the Reda Group, a boutique consultancy that provides strategic growth consulting and executive search. Over the arc of Eliana's career, she's frequently been hired to lead teams and organizations through critical transformations, including at her most recent role as the CEO and group president of Onward Search. Eliana is passionate about women in business and diversity and is absolutely fanatical about client service. She studied business administration and marketing at the University of Maryland and has been working with global brands and their creative service organizations for more than 20 years. As Eliana and I talk, listen for both the benefits and the potential costs of leading by example. Providing a pace-setting role model for others can also have unintended consequences, as you'll hear. Welcome to the show, Eliana. I am so looking forward to talking about your journey to the C-suite. Thank you so much, Sharon. It's great to be here. Lovely. So, Eliana, you've had a number of C-level roles over time and in a few different kinds of professional services organizations. Maybe could you just walk us briefly through what some of those key roles were and if it occurs to you... What's different about leading in, say, a staffing organization than in an organization that's more marketing focused? Sure. So I would say leadership for me began early in my career. I would say that it was during my days at Aquant, which is a global staffing organization that focuses on marketing and creatives as well. I held a number of director level roles there but got my first officer role when I joined an organization called Williams Lee. So I joined there as vice president of marketing solutions. And I was really brought in to help the organization with the acquisition and integration of a marketing agency that they wanted to tag on to their back-end print procurement outsourcing function. And so it was a big deal, big role. And I had an opportunity to work with some of the smartest and brightest people that I've had the pleasure of crossing paths with in my career. And so I would say the journey started there. And after about four years of doing that and living on an airplane, 
I actually launched my own consultancy, which I've come back to today, the Reda Group. And so for me, that role was about taking all of my learned experiences as an advisor to clients, as a growth-focused executive leading sales teams, sales enablement, sales function, strategic growth. In my career, it was an opportunity for me to take what I had learned and apply it to entire organizations. And so I had the pleasure then of helping leaders with their growth strategy specifically. And that can mean in different functions, right? Like there was a chief communications officer for the UN that I worked very closely with as she looked to design the function of communications within the UN and what that was meant to do. And so I've always been in and around leaders and their teams and helping them to identify and retain the talent they need to execute on the strategy we build together. And of course, focusing on the client side is useful. As you were trying to lead that integration, what did you learn about yourself and about how to mobilize folks to that sort of end? You know, that's a great question, Sharon. I would say what I learned about myself is that instinctively, I knew what needed to be done. I think in that particular role, as my first executive role, there was definite hesitation on my part. There was insecurity on my part because I literally worked with the smartest people I'd ever met in my professional career. And so what I learned at the end of that journey was to trust myself and to trust instinctually what I had learned through experience in my career. But mobilizing people comes down to whether or not they can trust their leader, whether or not there's transparency in the culture and the environment that you've built, if they are a part of the solution and what needs to be done. And of course, it really relies on the executive sponsorship that you have from either your board or, you know, in my case at Williams Lee, president of the Americas. And so I would say that those things have been key in any major integration, turnaround, acquisition that I've led in my career. That's great. And so what's an example of something that you would do to build that kind of trust and engage people in the organization to be part of that solution? Well, I think for me, it's taking the guesswork out of what I'm here to do, right? A lot of times leaders land and there's an ambiguity or kind of an unspoken word as to like, what are they here for? What are they going to do? What's their approach? Who are they going to bring in? And so I feel like there's a lot of unproductive time and fear that lives in cultures where you're not truly transparent. And so I always lead with the transparency of what my agenda is. I have been hired to do X, Y, and Z. And here's how you can help. Here's how you can be a part of that journey. Here's what I'm looking for. And here's what has to change and has to change quickly. And then this is the strategic journey we're going on, right? So there isn't a lot of guesswork. Here is the three-year strategy to become this kind of service provider, providing these types of services to these kinds of clients. And this is how we're going to get there. Well, I find taking the guesswork out of it and being really open and honest with people and being available, whether it's in monthly fireside chats or what have you, it's important that people understand why you're there and they hear it from you. And sometimes it's the difficult things. In my last role, I was there like during the great resignation and I had to tell teams that you're going to continue to lose people. Like things are going to get worse before they get better. And I don't think all teams are prepared for that level of transparency. And so when they do hear it, although it might be a shock in the beginning, 
they begin to appreciate your transparency. So how did you help those folks become able to hear that kind of transparency? I think in a lot of the companies that I work with, they are struggling with the same thing, that being transparent feels so critical to good leadership, but not everyone, like you said, is sort of ready to handle the kind of hard, cold business truth sometimes. So any thoughts on what helped that go better? I would say it's an ongoing task, right? There's not one or two things that we could do that would just fix that issue. But I would say helping employees understand where they fit in and how they're going to make a difference helps them to understand that business better, right? If you're a pharmaceutical company, we are in the business of saving lives through critical drugs, right? And so helping employees understand at a fundamental level what the business is there to do is where I always start. I don't make any assumptions because I continue to be surprised by how many people take their roles away from the core function of the business, right? So whether you are in accounts payable or you are a recruiter or you are a solutions architect in an outsourcing firm, you have to understand your value to the client and the organization you also have to understand what efficiency looks like in that role, what success looks like in that role. And so I'm a big believer in building clear performance matrix for people to understand, not just, hey, you've got to hit this number, but here are all the activities and the competencies that you need in order to serve our clients better. Now, I'm going to guess, but let me just confirm with you that that actually really helps people understand their own role. And when they understand their role and can connect their own sense of purpose to it, I'm going to guess that that helps build commitment. Have you found that to be true? Yes, I think it builds commitment. And in the long term, I can name dozens of employees who always come back and say, thank you for challenging me. Thank you for not accepting that as my best. And so for me, that's the barometer of success is have my actions to really push employees to be their best. Has that served them in their greater career beyond the current role that they're in or beyond the role they're in when I'm a leader of the organization? I'm also very clear about what my expectations are, what I'm going to be doing to help them on that journey, both as a leader, but as an individual contributor in the organization as well. I imagine that also helps for people to see where you're putting your own focus, and then that can reinforce that shared focus. So let's see, Aquin, you were there for, what, about six years or so? I was there for 10 years the first round, close to three the second. So I left the organization and was recruited back. Well, that's always a positive, I know. And so I know you took some time to get the Reddit group started, and... Thereafter, you joined a company called Cruise Control. Tell us about that one, what you were doing there, and how did it build on what you had done at both Aquin and at the Reda Group? So as I shared with you during my time at Williams Lee, which later branded to be known as Tag Worldwide today, I needed to be centered in motherhood at that point. My kids were very, very young. So the purpose of starting Reda Group then was to create some sort of balance by working with clients 
up and down the eastern seaboard so that I could be home for my children. And in doing that, Cruise Control was one of the clients that I was referred to to do advisory work. So going in and really looking at the business strategically and putting together a business development process and a client engagement process and how to build seven-figure client relationships, right? And so Cruise Control is an amazing organization run by an amazing strong woman named Andrea Keating. And so that consulting relationship, you know, she kept booking up more and more of my time for the firm. And so at one point, we made the decision to go into business together and for me to be a full-time employee. So I joined as the senior vice president of strategy and operations. And so I straddled both sides of the house, both on the sales and the account management side, and then operationally handing all the contractual, legal, HR, back office stuff. And so that decision was made to do that March 6th of 2020. Oh my gosh. So literally three days before the world shut down. Wow. So being a media services company that provides crewing services, video crews on the ground to corporate communication teams and executive teams to capture anything that needs to be on video. And so in an instant, that business was at risk because of the fact that crews couldn't be on the ground. We couldn't travel and companies weren't recording in person. And so I had the pleasure of working with Andrea and other business owners to create a solution that was going to essentially keep the business relevant during a time when it couldn't provide core services to its clients. That must have been really challenging. Yeah, you know, there was a lot of gray hair earned during that time, but we got through it and we had a hell of a time doing it. And we were able to build new remote capture solutions for clients that are still in play today. Kind of changes the whole industry a little bit, doesn't it, when you find that new way to do it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about all of the businesses that were born in either really bad economic times, like Uber and Airbnb, to all of the creative ways of working together and collaboratively that COVID has brought about, it did create an opportunity. And in in this case, Cruise Control, to really provide service to its customers in a new and innovative way. And how did you, as one of the senior executives, help the employees of the organization make that adjustment or help the crews that you were sending out digitally, so to speak? How did you all help people make that mindset shift and change those practices and behaviors? Well, I think during that time, the work that we were doing, honestly, was about being a human on the other side of the phone to a very scared group of individuals who were uncertain as to their future as a business owner, as a freelancer. And so, you know, a lot of the conversations my teams had, and they did a lot of the heavy lifting, was having those it's going to be okay conversations with the global teams that they worked with. And then often it's the same thing on the client side. You know, we had clients that have tremendous brands and pride around those brands now delivering everything over Zoom or Teams. It was about keeping communities together. So we launched an executive roundtable at that time to bring clients together. We had talent town halls where we bought crews together, videographers together, professionals together, and had just open sharing. So really facilitating sharing, support, ideas, trends to help both clients and service providers get through that time. And it was all remote at that time. So you were just in a ton of digital meetings, virtual meetings. Yeah. And so then from there, you went on to Onward Search. 
and there you took a CEO role and a group president role. And maybe just a brief overview, just to give people the sense of how that business was different and what you were doing differently. Sure. So yeah, I was recruited to Onward Search, which was at the time a almost 15-year-old national staffing company that focused on marketing, digital, and tech staffing. And it had just launched a gaming division. And so I had, you know, very clear mandate to come in and really transform the business to become an enterprise organization that could scale to the top of its competitor list. So I joined as group president. And in that role, I had remit over most of the organization. And then I had dotted line responsibility over HR and finance. And so it was a tremendous two and a half years, which I will tell you, honestly, it's the hardest I've ever worked in my entire career. I would say we put in 10 years worth of work into that two and a half years. So everything that I had ever done before kind of came together and this role required all of it, training, development, leadership structure. And both years, actually, we ended up hitting best ever years since inception, which is something I'm super proud of. That sounds amazing. So I think maybe this is a good point to pause and say, if you were to try to sum up your leadership principles, if you will, or like, how do you think about your most important role as a senior executive, as a C-level executive? What do you think about in terms of how you want to lead and how you should lead? I would say in terms of my leadership, what I would always want to be known for is the intent of doing right by the organization and all of its stakeholders of which the employees are a part. And so, you know, that means meeting people where they are, Sharon. It also means understanding that your superpowers are very different than my superpowers. And so how do we harness that together how do we get you to the top of your game? How do I get to the top of my game so that we can achieve this greatness together? And so that level of inclusivity is really important to me. That level of mentorship is really important to me. And so I would say that my leadership style is about growth. It's about achieving wild success. It's about disrupting. It's about innovating. And I'm super competitive. And so it's about becoming number one always. And where do you think that competitive drive comes from for you? You know, I can't, I can't say it's my parents because they are the most sweetest, passive people that you'll ever meet. I don't know. I honestly think that I was just wired that way. I've always been extremely competitive and really with the intent of being the best that I can be. And so I always feel like the teams that we have, when I look around at the talent that's represented at the executive leadership tables that I've had the pleasure of managing, it's always been the best of the best. And I truly feel that way. And I have to feel that way in order for me to go to clients and ask for their trust in me, their business. When you got to Onward, was a good story that would illustrate how you showed up and what you brought to the organization that was new and fresh? Because I know there was also transformation needed there. So what kinds of leadership practices did you bring in and what did you show people or how did you invite them on that journey? That's a great question, Sharon. I would say the biggest thing that I brought to Onward was an understanding of every role in the organization. And so in my particular career, 
I had sat there and done the jobs that the recruiters had done when I worked a full desk. And I had done the door knocking and door kicking that the business developers had done. And I had established a mantra in my career that everyone sells and everyone recruits. And once I enacted this and, you know, really challenged everyone in the organization, we were getting leads from our finance folks. They were out on the weekends introducing themselves and the company and bringing those opportunities back to our business development staff. And so I think that fundamentally there wasn't really a question or challenge that the teams could have that I couldn't weigh in on because of experience. And I was going out on my own meetings, right? So talking about being transparent about what I expect of you. Here's what I'm going to do as a leader. I'm going to go and provide executive sponsorship over these clients. I'm going to leverage these relationships to ensure that you can be successful on the ground selling at the director, at the manager level. And so I felt like provided onward a level of professional understanding and sponsorship and client development and sales process that they hadn't seen before and one that made sense and we were able to show incremental growth in major accounts that we'd had and success in those accounts that we hadn't seen before applying those principles. So I hear a lot of leading by example. I hear a lot of open communication and dialogue. And you mentioned also kind of meeting people where they are in reference to having a very diverse group of employees, as well as a very diverse group of clients. So how did you go about that? When I look back at all of the teams that I've been a part of, whether I'm leading the team or I'm an individual contributor, there were no two people that were alike, either in experience or thought In a lot of cases, you know, as a woman of color, I was the only woman at the table, the only woman of color at the table, sometimes the only person of color at the table. And so leading by example was key to driving diversity because I am diversity. I represent diversity and I carry the weight of that at every table that I sit at where there are no women. I carry that weight at every table I sit at where there's no one of color. And so I think it starts with me and trying to model the behavior and model excellence, right? And when people pay attention to excellence, that gives you an opportunity to insert diversity as part of why that excellence exists. I'm thinking back to, uh, as we've reflected on your journey, how many of these roles have really been about leading change in the organization in order to accelerate its growth. So I imagine any executive who hears this story that you had your accounts payable folks out like recruiting, they're like, how did you get them excited enough? What made them feel passionate enough about the company to want to do that? You and I talked previously about how important it is for people to feel engaged and valued. Can you think of anything in particular that you and the other executives did to build that kind of alignment and passion? Sure. You know, Sharon, as humans, we are so simple. We want to be seen. We want to be valued. We want to be included. And so I would say at every opportunity that I've had, I meet with employees and I talk with them. And again, I illustrate the importance of what they do. They do. I'll give you an example. I hired a contracts manager at a role. That person was up against a very difficult climb because that function didn't exist. The rigor around that function didn't exist. And so they were seen as 
the Antichrist versus, you know, the person that was coming in to mitigate risk for us. And so to keep that person, that team of one motivated, I had regular one-on-ones with that person to ensure they understood they had my sponsorship and it was also my mandate to protect the business in the way that it needed to be protected. And so there's no cookie cutter solution for how you do that, but that person needed to know on a regular basis that what they were doing was important, how it fit into the bigger picture, and they needed to know that they had my full support. And so you can take that and apply that to anyone in a customer service role, an accounts receivable role, an accounts receivable role, to thank them, to genuinely thank them for their collection efforts and everything they've done to get X millions of dollars in the door these past couple of weeks. And every day they choose to stay at an organization that I lead is another day that they're voting for me. And I don't take that for granted. And I try to articulate that to the teams that I've managed, helping them see how important they are in the vision and thank them for their hard work because everyone works hard. Well, as far as I can tell, your passion shines through and it's easy to feel that commitment and how much you do care. So I'm sure any listener can pick that up. So one of the things that I love to do is kind of talk with guests about key challenges. And uh, in particular, lately, we've been talking a lot about feedback and how do you get feedback and what kind of feedback did you get that maybe was hard for you to hear and how did you take it in and what did you do about it? You know, you ask all of these great questions. You should have like your own talk show. So, you know, feedback to me early in my career, a mentor of mine at IBM told me that feedback was a gift. And I'm so grateful that she told me that so early in my career to ensure that my defenses were down. And so I've always seen feedback as a positive thing. Although there are times that you get feedback that you either disagree with or you find so difficult to swallow. And I would say there was this one time that I've got really difficult feedback from a board that I really felt was one-sided. Could you find a kernel of truth in what you heard that you could? Always. And so what did you learn about yourself? I learned that sometimes it's better not to over-prioritize, if that makes sense. So in this particular instance, there were so many things that were broken that what I was doing was trying to fix everything as I was going along, right? So doing that, instead of just kind of saying, okay, board, only you are my stakeholders and I'm only going to fix this one thing, it cost me. (laughs) Yeah, I do think, first of all, I'm really grateful that you're willing to talk about that challenge of senior executives dealing with their boards because boards have different levels of skill. They have different kinds of focus. They're not always, like you say, getting the full picture. And often their measures of success don't 100% match some of the other measures. So when this happens, what advice could you share with other executives about engaging with a board when there's a misalignment or some disagreement? Well, the one thing that I would say rings true is the different dynamics on a board and knowing how to leverage and align yourself with those dynamics is really key. For example, I would say it's important that you spend an equal amount of time with your entire board versus 
one or two people, right? In terms of reporting or like regular interactions. And so the first advice I would give is to really build that relationship across the entire board and ensure you're communicating regularly across that entire board, what your value is and kind of what you're working on beyond those quarterly or semi-annual meetings. So do you do one-on-one contact with board members? You just kind of keep in touch with each person individually, or do you prefer to do group communications in-betweens? So I would say my answer is twofold. I would say the business communications in terms of like what's happening in the business or regular updates, I prefer for that to be across the board. But I would say understanding individual motivations and expectations and building that individual relationship should be done one-on-one. That's terrific. So any other feedback you've gotten from your team members or your direct reports that you were able to put to good use? Something that others might be able to emulate? I would say every team that I've ever managed right now would be very, very happy to know that I am setting boundaries for myself. So the biggest feedback I've ever gotten from any 360 review and any employee is that by not having some semblance of work-life balance, it puts pressure on the team that I'm working from 5 a.m. to midnight. It puts unfair pressure on the team that I don't use all of my PTO. So what happens is, is that Even though I say this is not important, like you don't have to respond to this until next week or what have you, you know, my need to get stuff off my plate and queued up creates a pace and attention and an expectation among my teams that I think was created some big pressures. And so the biggest feedback in my entire career has been about that, has been about being able to create those boundaries of normalcy. When you're out to dominate the world, Sharon, it's hard to create boundaries. You know, boundaries just kind of don't exist in those industries. And so I would say that I've worked really, really hard these past six months to create some balance in my life. My guess is that many of the senior leaders I've worked with would be very proud of me for that, in addition to wishing I did that earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to say I think that that's probably feedback that a lot of CEOs get because it's not obvious to their teams how they take care of themselves. But as you've talked about today, there is a cost personally and professionally to not taking that time for yourself and making sure you've got time to replenish and restore. So what would you say is your sort of current learning edge in terms of how you're going to go forward with your next executive role? You know, my learning edge really does come down to the basics of self-care. Like you said, getting enough sleep just on a very basic level. I never got more than five hours sleep for as long as I can remember in my adult career. And so I think, you know, a big part of it starts with that, starts with creating the time to exercise regularly and ensure that you're eating the right foods that'll give you the energy and fuel you. Like I know these seem to be like very basic things, but when you're running at the paces that I was running, there wasn't time for all of it all the time. (laughs) And so just going back to basics on that and ensuring that I'm listening to my body, because oftentimes my body's like, help, enough, slow down. And my mind has told me, you've got to keep going. You've got the goal. You've got to keep going. 
at whatever the cost. And I'm just happy to say at this point in my life, that's not the case anymore. That must be a huge relief. It is. It's a huge relief. So, you know, the title of this podcast is To Lead is Human. And I know what that means to me, but I do like to ask each guest, like, what does that mean to you, to lead is human? When I hear to lead is human, that to me means that all of us have our challenges, all of us have our flaws, and the bravest person displays those flaws and uses that as a way of encouraging and driving others to do great things. That's lovely. So as we're wrapping up, Eliana, is there a piece of advice you'd like to share with our listeners if they're at a place in their own executive leadership where they're trying to figure out how to excel for all their stakeholders and make sure that their workplaces are full of people who are engaged and excited about what the company is there to do or what the organization is committed to? I would say to do what feels right, what you would be happy with on the receiving end. And for me, that's always been around clarity, good intentions, transparency, and a safety that comes from really working as a team, working together. So whether that's with your board or that's with your leadership team. And so I always ask myself how I would feel and be on the other side of this communication and I feel like all of us have our own barometers. And if we often listen to those barometers, they'll lead us in the right place. Well, I really appreciate the depth of reflection today, Eliana. And I appreciate so much for making time to come on and share these important learnings from your own journey. And I, for one, am excited to see what comes next for you. So what's the best way for listeners to find out what you're up to next or to reach out and catch up with you? So thanks for that. And yeah, I am, as I said earlier in the show, I have made the decision to go back to the Reda Group, which is my own consultancy. So I'm consulting with boards and executives on their growth and strategic initiatives. And I'm doing executive search on the back end of that, helping them to find the teams that they need to execute on that vision. I am on LinkedIn and also be reached via email. So Eliana, E-L-I-A-N-A dot Hassan, H-A-S-S-E-N at redagroup.com. And that's R-E-D-D-A. Correct. Excellent. Well, again, Eliana, thank you so much for sharing your stories and being here today. And uh, I wish you a great rest of the week. Thank you so much, Sharon. I appreciate you bringing together all of the leaders that you've had to share vulnerably in a safe environment that encourages other leaders to grow. I appreciate you very much for the work you're doing here. Oh, thank you so much. Please stay with us for a moment and I'll share some takeaways and one coaching tip to help you improve your own leadership starting today. Hi, this is Sharon. I'm popping in just before the takeaways to remind you that as an executive coach, I'm always looking to support new clients. If you or someone you know might be looking for an executive coach, head over to my website, leadinglarge.com, and you can book a complimentary appointment with me. In the first 25 minutes, we'll be able to identify a challenge you're facing and talk about whether I'm the right fit to work with you. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you.
So in talking with Eliana, I think a few things really stood out to me as core to how she sees her own leadership principles and priorities. And the first one, I think is extremely powerful, and that is engage with each person as the unique individual that they are, not as a member of a group or a member of a job category, but learning about each person's own needs, wants, concerns, and most importantly, what they find motivating. In reality, I think this is the ultimate inclusivity practice, welcoming each person as their full self with all the differences that make them who they are. The second thing that really stood out to me is how important intent is to Eliana. And in this case, I want to call out how Eliana emphasizes that if you wish to build motivation, you should lead as much as possible from your intention, explaining why you're doing X or why you're asking someone else to do X and what you hope the outcome will be. Being transparent about the whys in your business, W-H-Y, goes a long way toward helping to decrease resistance to big changes, as well as to build alignment toward purpose. The third big takeaway is really for those CEOs out there that also have boards to manage, and this is be really strategic in how you manage your board. Eliana has learned and shared with us how important it is to nurture relationships with each board member as well as with the board as a whole group. So be clear and consistent about what things you communicate to the whole board at once, business updates, changes in situation, externalities, whatever internal messaging you want them to have, but also be separate about the things you want to handle one off. And again, it's really important to remember as the CEO that you can also be somewhat strategic about what you choose to share and when. The tip I have today for you, whether you're a CEO managing a board or whether you're just planning a conversation with an employee, is to design your conversations with intent. And one key way to do this is to use what I've described as the 3H model. 3H standing for head, heart, and hands. And what this means is take a few minutes before an important conversation or meeting to clarify for yourself what outcomes do you need someone to know or think? What do you want people to have in their head at the end of the conversation or meeting? What feelings do you want them to have or emotions? How do you want their hearts to respond to you and to your conversation or meeting? And lastly, hands, what do you want people to do? If you take a few minutes to 3H yourself before these conversations and meetings, you will make sure that you're intentionally designing the most important conversations you have with the end in mind. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead is Human. You can learn more about me at leadinglarge.com, L-E-A-D-I-N-G, large.com. To Lead is Human is part of the Mirror CFM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Making It. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb with support by Jeff Galbertson. Melissa Deal assembled the episode and Marvin Del Rosario is the audio editor. Danny Eaney is our executive producer. Hey, don't miss upcoming episodes. Follow us on Miracy FM's YouTube channel or on your favorite podcast player. Did you learn something useful today? If so, take a minute to jot it down and leave a starred review. Better yet, tell your colleagues about us. The more leaders that listen and practice human leadership, the better for all of us. 
Thank you so much for joining me today, and I'll see you next time on To Lead is Human. Miracy. I'm Molly Mahoney. I'm Danny Eaney. I'm Virginia Mooskies. I'm Melinda Cohen. I'm Dave Lacani. I'm Michael Port, and you're listening to Making, Making it. it. You would think that when you hit the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, you would feel like you made it. For me, it never has. I think making it can mean whatever you want it to mean for you. Making it is about having time to spend as I want to spend it. Making it really is about being free to live according to your own genuine values and priorities. It's about acceptance. Not only like making money, but make a difference. Make a contribution. contribution. Like feeling like I'm making a difference to someone. And I don't think making it is a one and done. I think it's an ebb and flow spiral type of pattern. Making it to me really means being able to bring your whole self to the table. It's really a choice that you make every day. Because the truth is that you do not really know what you're doing until you get started doing it. I'd say that the first seven, maybe eight years was like pushing a boulder up the hill. If there's anything that I could say to my younger self, I would say, really? Like for real, for real? Trust. I would tell myself no shortcuts, no shortcuts. The path is always in front of you, even if it's not clear. The key is to keep moving forward. Everything requires work and effort, no matter how much you love it. You've got to find something that you love, something that you enjoy, so that your work is not a labor, it's not a chore. Don't compare yourself to others. But recognize that if you see someone else doing something that is of interest to you, you can do it also. I had this sensation of, I kind of felt like the walls were shaking and I just felt like, that's what I've been doing all this time. That's who I am. In that moment, I knew who they were. I knew the burdens and distractions and I knew full potential. And then I ended up ultimately in the ultimate Frisbee Hall of Fame as a Johnny Appleseed for taking the sport out to the world. And so I just said to myself, you have to give this a try. If you don't give it a try, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you could have done it. The water is always changing, and your comfort with that doesn't come from knowing that there is no uncertainty coming. It comes from trusting in your competence to handle that. I like to say, don't emulate, elevate. That's how you're going to make it. Making It is a weekly podcast brought to you by our team at Miracy. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most anywhere else podcasts are found.